If you turn over in your Bibles to Matthew, uh, uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 3, for the text today, Philippians 3, 1 through 9. Let me pray again before we begin. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your word. Amen. Let me read the first nine verses of Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as the zeal of persecutor of the church, as the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, the, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost. In view of the passing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Well, if you got to know me a little bit, you would know that I have a huge passion for the gospel. I believe that the gospel is our greatest treasure, and I believe that the church of Jesus Christ, the true church, has a responsibility not only to proclaim the gospel in the Great Commission, but to protect and preserve it. Let me give you a definition of the gospel I'm going to use today. It's my definition, and I'm going to be repeating that a number of times during the sermon. The gospel is this, Jesus Christ plus nothing. Jesus Christ plus what? Nothing. I've been around a long time. And I've been in a lot of churches. I've seen a lot of uh, pastors. I've seen a lot of uh, ministry. And I've noticed, even more so in recent days, that a lot of churches are not clear about the gospel. A lot of churches play loose and free with the gospel. They give the impression to their people that there's something they have to do to be saved. They give the impression that it's not Jesus Christ plus nothing. That it's Jesus Christ plus something you have to do to be saved. And that is not the gospel. And let me propose to you, we are told as a church, I'm going to talk about this some tonight, 
to carry out the Great Commission. Is that not right? Go and make disciples of all the nations? How can we go and make disciples if we don't have a clear, precise gospel? If we're hazy about the gospel, how can we really go and make disciples? And a lot of these churches, they claim they want to make disciples, but they are very unclear about the gospel. They give the impression that you have to be baptized to be saved, or you have to do some work to be saved, in addition to what Jesus Christ has done. The gospel is Jesus Christ plus nothing. Paul, who wrote the passage we read, used to hate the gospel. When he was a Pharisee, he persecuted those who preached the gospel. He put people in jail who preached the gospel. But then he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, and he changed his mind. He, he began to be one of the great champions of the gospel. Galatians 1. If I or an angel from heaven preach to you another gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be a curse. Paul fought for the true gospel. In fact, he went to the Jerusalem Council and argued for the true gospel when the Judaizers were arguing for something else. He won the day. And he preached that gospel throughout the Roman Empire, started many churches, started many churches. The Philippian church was started by Paul on his second missionary journey. He heard the Macedonian call. You've read about it in the book of Acts. He goes over to Philippi. He realizes there's no synagogue, which he usually started preaching in a synagogue. So he preached on the riverbank. His first convert was a lady named Lydia who sold purple fabric, a businesswoman. She became a Christian, and it says that her whole household, including her, were baptized. Now, we don't know if they all became Christians or if some of them were baptized infant baptism, but they were all baptized. And then the second week Paul is there, he gets in trouble, and he's put in jail. And God opens the door to the jail, and Paul could walk out, but he doesn't. And it prompts the Philippian jailer to say to Paul, what shall I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved along with your house. And here again, the second, second example of the Philippian jailer was baptized, and all of his family was baptized. We don't know if they all became Christians or if some of them were children, but they were all baptized. And Paul, because of the great persecution he was under, left Philippi after two weeks. He only spent two weeks there. But he had, he had formed a, a, a nucleus for a church, and he left behind Luke to be the pastor. Yes, Luke that wrote the book of Acts. Luke was the pastor in Philippi for seven years. And that church grew up to be a great church. It was probably the best church 
one of the best churches Paul formed. In fact, history tells us they were the first church to have a building. In fact, if you go there, you can see that building today. The, ex the, the excavation of that building. So Paul founded the church in 51 AD on the second missionary journey. And he wrote the letter to the Philippians in 63, 12 years later. By this time, Paul is in prison. And the Philippian church was one church, the, really the only church that helped Paul while he was in prison. They, they sent him money. They sent one of their elders, Epaphroditus, to minister to him. And so Paul writes this letter to them, the letter to the Philippians, as a thank you, rejoicing over how good the church is. In fact, the theme of the book of Philippians is the joy of the Lord. Philippians 4.4 4 is the theme verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He uses, he speaks about rejoicing four times in the book. So he's, this is a book of thanksgiving. But the passage I read you is not about thanksgiving. The passage I read you is a warning. Paul includes a warning in this great book of thanksgiving. He's warning the church in Philippi about something. What is he warning them about? He's warning them about the Judaizers. He's warning them about those who are going around trying to pollute the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. In other words, Paul is warning them again. He's warned them over and over. This is not the first time. that He's warned them about the Judaizers. These Judaizers are guys who say they're Christians. They say they're believers. They're Jews. They're going around to the Gentile Christians uh, trying to get them to be circumcised. They're telling them, yes, Jesus is good. Jesus is good, but you also have to be circumcised. In other words, they're not teaching Jesus Christ plus Nothing. They're teaching Jesus Christ plus circumcision. And Paul is angry about that. He's very upset because he knows and he believes that Jesus Christ did everything we need to be saved. That we can contribute nothing. He did it all. And we know Paul is mad and upset because in the text he uses three of the most poignant words he, that are in the Bible. Three of the strongest words. First in verse 2 he calls these Judaizers dogs. Beware of the dogs. This is, this is a, there are different Greek words for dog. One is, they have a Greek word for puppy, you know, kind of a nice little dog. This is not what that word. This is a ravenous dog, a rabid dog. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. You can see the anger in Paul's statement. Beware of the false circumcision. That word is interesting, false circumcision. It's actually mutilation. And he, you can imagine, you can imagine in your mind what a mutilated 
circumcision would be like. And he says, these Judaizers are mutilating the gospel. They are mutilating the gospel because the gospel is Jesus Christ plus nothing and they're saying it's Jesus Christ plus something and they are mutilating the gospel and he calls them dogs. And then the third really powerful word is down later in verse 8 where he says, the things that were against me I counted as rubbish and we're going to see why he did that in a minute. That word rubbish, I can see the translators now trying to figure out how to state that word because it's really not rubbish. The, in Greek, the word is dung, manure. He says, I count it as manure. All those things I used to trust in and I thought would save me, I count it as manure. See, Paul is trying to protect and preserve the gospel Because he knows that without the gospel, we have no mission. Without the gospel, we cannot carry out the Great Commission. Without the gospel, we cannot be saved. In verse 3, he says, For we are the true circumcision, who, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It's a play on words. He says, they're the false circumcision. They're the mutilation. We are the true circumcision. Because we believe in Jesus Christ plus nothing. He says, we do not trust in the flesh. What does it mean to trust in the flesh? Well, the true gospel is Jesus Christ plus nothing. And the true gospel means you trust in Jesus Christ alone. Correct? The false gospel is you trust in something men do, men does. Something that man does. So to, to, to put confidence in the flesh means you're trusting in something that you do or that someone does for you or something that you have or something that you are. You're trusting in something other than Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus Christ plus nothing. It's Jesus Christ plus something else. It could be circumcision. It could be a number of other things. Now, we know if we look at, I remember when I was looking into Christianity, I was interested in Christianity. I'd never been to church. And when I was 24, I studied all the religions of the world. I wanted to be fair. I wanted to make sure that I, I gave them all a chance. And I studied all the religions of the world and it became clear to me quickly that there's a huge difference between Christianity and other religions. You all agree with that, right? The Bible says no other name, there's no other name given among men by which we may be saved. It says that for a reason, because other religions, all religions teach salvation by works, right? One form or another. It could be the five pillars of the faith, it could be the sevenfold path, it could be the Ten Commandments, it could be Lots of different methods to work your way to heaven. But all of them teach that you're saved by what you do. And we know that's not the gospel because the Bible says, by works of the law, no man is justified in God's sight. By grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. Lest any man should boast. Not even our faith is a work, the Bible says. 
It's something God gives us. So we're, we're clear about the religions of the world. They are teaching works. We teach grace, right? We teach salvation as the gift of God, something God does. That's Reformed theology. Is that not right? But what about those who muddle the water like the cults? What is a cult? A cult is a group that says they're Christian, but yet they say there's more you have to do than trust in Jesus. Just like the Judaizers. A cult says, yes, Jesus is good. We, we, we're Christians. But there are other things that must be done before you can be sure you'll be saved. Take the Mormons, for example. They want to be, they want to be considered Christian. You know, the Mormon tabernacle choir and all that. They want to be considered Christians. But yet, they teach that you cannot be saved unless you are a Mormon and that you, you, have, to, you have to be baptized into the church and you have, to, you, have to, you have to follow Joseph Smith's teachings. Is that, let me ask you, is that Jesus Christ plus nothing? It is not. Well, what about the, the Catholic Church? The Catholic Church claims to be Christian and that, uh, that you know, they trust in Christ and they believe in him. But if you look at what they teach, and I'm not saying there are not a lot of Catholics or Christians, there are, who are Christians in spite of the church, not because of it. But if they follow what the church teaches, and that is you are saved by the sacraments that the church gives you to get, so that you can receive the grace that Jesus provided the church is the custodian of the grace. And through the seven sacraments, those are the seven stair steps to heaven. Let me ask you, is that Jesus Christ plus nothing? It is not. The church wants to claim the right to administer salvation. Well, we have lots of cults like this. I could go through a number of them. But they teach Jesus Christ plus something else. They trust, they, they, they trust in the flesh. They put confidence in the flesh. In verse 4, Paul moves on and he says, we put no confidence in the flesh, but I, if anybody can put confidence in the flesh, it's me. He said, although I myself may have confidence in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he lists some things that he used to put confidence in before he became a true believer. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as the zeal of persecuting the church, as the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. He lists seven things that he used to trust in for a salvation. And I've, these seven things, I've put them in a little bit different form. Circumcised the eighth day would be ritual. Of the nation of Israel would be race. Of the tribe of Benjamin would be rearing. A Hebrew of the Hebrews would be religion. As to the law of Pharisee would be rules. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's self-explanatory. And finally, 
It's a righteousness which in the law found blameless. Personal righteousness. These are the seven things that people trust in today in addition to Jesus Christ. I've done many surveys over the years. And I worked as a church consultant for many years. And I've found consistently that nine out of ten people in the church that go to church, if you ask them the two core rich questions, the first question, if you were to die today, are you certain you go to heaven? Everybody who goes to church thinks you're going to go to heaven. Almost everybody says, I'm certain I'd go to heaven. Then you ask the second question. If you were to die today and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Nine out of ten people who go to church in the United States would give you a works answer. They would give you one of these seven things as an answer. Now, what does that mean? If they give you a works answer, if that's their first thought when you ask them to tell God why you should let them into heaven, does not that mean that they are trusting in those things to some degree? Does that mean that? Let's look at the seven things. Circumcised the eighth day. Ritual. When I ask some, a lot of people I'll ask, <clears throat> what, would God, what would you say to God if he said, why well, should I let you into heaven? A lot of people would say, well, I walked an aisle when I was 12. Uh, I've been baptized, they'll say. Uh, I've gone through confirmation. I've joined the church. They think all, they, they, they list those things it's things that they would say to God if he said, why shall I let you into heaven? And what about race? I remember Paul talking to the Jews in Romans, I mean in John chapter 8, and they said, well, we're of the nation of Israel. We're, of the, we're descendants of Abraham. Abraham is our father. He said, no, no, no. You are are of your father, the devil. My friends, there's no race that gets a leg up when it comes to salvation. Every person born on this earth is a child of the devil when he's born, and you've got to be transferred, adoption, remember, into the kingdom of God's dear son. You have to be transferred in the new family. What about rearing? If I said to them, if God said you want to let you into heaven, a lot of people would say, well, my family is Christian. My mother taught Sunday school. My dad's an elder. I've always been a Christian. My granddaddy founded this church. I've heard all those things. But you cannot ride to heaven on the back of your parents. Every person must deal with God individually. And every generation must come to faith on their own. What about religion? Hebrew of the Hebrews. I say, if I say to somebody, to some, what would you say to God if he said, why should I let you into heaven? A lot of people would say, I've heard this many times, well, I believe in God, as though that kind of settles the matter. I like to say to them, well, the demons believe and tremble, the Bible says. They believe in God and they're not saved. Now, it's good that you believe in God. Now what are you going to do? Where are you going to go from here? 
Or they'll say, I, 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 I go to church. And so going to church means automatically you're a Christian. And what about rules? Most religions in the world, including those of the cults, normally look at Christianity like the Jews did. The Jews looked at, I mean, looked at salvation like the Jews did. They said, uh, it's like a scale and balance. We have all these rules. The Jews expanded the rules to 365, the Ten Commandments, 365 rules, because they wanted to be sure that they kept them so that when the scale and balance, they would have more good on, than bad. And they thought that if they could have more, do more good than bad, that they would go to heaven. My friends, that's not the way God judges. God is perfect. His standard of judgment is perfect. In order to go to heaven, you must be perfect. How many of you think you can be perfect? How do you become perfect? You become perfect by God giving you that perfection through Jesus Christ. You become perfect because you receive his perfect righteousness. It's called justification. You receive his perfect righteousness. And when God looks at you, you're not really perfect, but he sees you as perfect because God, Jesus has given you his perfect righteousness. So that when you stand before God, you are acceptable to go to heaven. Well, what about zeal? There are a lot of people said, you know, I, they're really zealous. I mean, the, the cults are really zealous for their beliefs, but you can be zealous for a lie, kind of like, kind of like terrorists. What about personal righteousness? Paul says, as to the law, I was found blameless. According to the Jewish way of looking at the law, they taught that the law was external only. They didn't see the internal aspects of the law. A lot of Jesus' teaching was about the internal aspects of the law. The Sermon on the Mount. If you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. If you hate someone, you've committed murder. So he, Jesus was trying to show the Pharisees that they were wrong and just looking at the law as external. That there was the internal aspect of the law. So Paul said, according to the way Jews looked at it, I kept all the rules, I was blameless. I was blameless. When I ask people the question, if God said to you, why should I let you into heaven? There are a lot of people who will say, and I almost laugh in their face when they say this, well, I keep the commandments. <laughs> no, you don't. If you think you keep the commandments, you don't understand the commandments. Because the commandment is not only external is internal it's thought word and deed is attitude and action and you break probably a dozen commandments before you before breakfast every morning if you think you keep the commandments you are crazy i like to say to people who tell me that i said well that's interesting have you ever told a lie oh yeah i i have have you ever stolen anything Oh, yeah, I, I've, I've stolen a few times. I've stolen something. Have you ever hated anybody? Well, there was that bully, you know, back in school I kind of hated. I said, well, you just admitted to be a thief, a liar, and a murderer. <laughs> you still think you keep the commandments? 
They'll just say to me, oh, I follow the golden rule. I do unto others as I would have them do unto me. I said, no, you don't. Come on. You don't. And this is my favorite. I'm a good person. No, you're not. <laughs> Romans 3 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. None of us are good people. So you see how all of these things that Paul used to have as his accolades and he used to trust in are failures. None of these things can save you. These are just trusting in the flesh. Putting confidence in the flesh, as Paul put it. So Paul says in verse 7, he said, this is what he did. He used to trust in these things. He met Jesus on the Damascus Road, and this is what happened. He said, the things that were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for, I, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ. I used to trust in these things, Paul said, but now I count them as dung. I don't even trust in any of these things at all. When Paul became a believer, he lost a lot of things. He lost his family. They disowned him. He, some believe he was married. His wife left him. He lost his religion. He lost his status as a Pharisee. He lost his future because he was supposed to replace Gamaliel, the great teacher. He lost his wealth. He lost his culture. He lost his inheritance. And he lost his self-rule and self-righteousness. People who trust in the things we've mentioned, these seven things, there's only one way to describe it. It's self-righteousness. You think that you can produce righteousness and that God will, will save you because you're righteous. You believe in works. See, faith that brings true justification is to trust in Jesus Christ alone. Do you agree with that? It's to realize that Jesus did everything that could be done. I don't have to contribute anything. Not even my faith is a work. I, I trust in Jesus Christ alone. And you, and, and you should understand, if you don't already, that if you're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ, even a little bit, like your baptism or your church membership or whatever, or your works, if you trust in these things even a little bit, you cannot be trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Right? And if you don't trust in Jesus Christ alone, you're not justified. So therefore, you're not saved. So if any of you in this room are trusting in anything I've mentioned at all, if, if I asked you the question, if you were to die today, and God said, why should I let you to heaven? Is your, if your first thought is a works answer, then my friends, you probably need to go back and get saved. Because you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone. When you trust in Jesus Christ alone, there's a transference of trust. 
This is what happened to Paul. He used to trust in these things, and he transferred his trust to Jesus Christ alone. He stopped trusting in these things, and he started trusting in Jesus Christ alone. There's a transference of trust. It's like the chair illustration. If Jesus Christ is the chair, what does it mean to trust the chair? You have to sit in the chair, raise up your feet, and put all your weight on the chair. That's where you trust the chair. If you keep your feet on the floor and try to hold yourself up, you're not trusting the chair. So if you trust in Jesus Christ alone, you trust in nothing else. You trust in him. That's it. You transfer your trust from whatever you might be trusting in to Jesus Christ. The last verse, verse 9. I suffer the loss of all things that I may encounter them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He's describing what there? Justification, right? You get a righteousness that's not your own, not from keeping the law, but through faith in Christ. That's justification. I'm sure you all could probably quote the catechism definition of justification, right? Justification is an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons us of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, not because of anything we have done, because of, but solely because of the work of Christ imputed to us. He's talking about justification. When you're justified, what happens? Our filthy rags our, of our personal righteousness it's swapped for Christ's righteousness. It's like you have a robe on when you're born and, and you know, you already got a black mark on it because you had original sin, but then every sin that you've committed is marked on that robe and now that robe is almost black with black marks from your sins. But when you accept Christ and trust in him and transfer your trust from whatever you're trusting into him, that robe is taken off of you and burned up on the cross and you receive Jesus' perfect white robe. And now you have that white robe and when God looks at you, he sees perfection. He sees a white robe. Or put it this way. Let's say you have a book with all your sins listed in them. The Bible says God keeps up with your sins, so there may be such a book. In my case, it would be volumes. It would be an encyclopedic. You have, you have these books with your sins in them and those sins are burned up on the cross and then Jesus' perfect book, you get your name put on it. So when God looks at you, he sees that book. That is justification. Because you trust in him and what the word says and what he did, you swap your sin for his righteousness. You not only get rid of your sin, but you get his perfect righteousness. My friends, let me just conclude by asking you this question. Have you done this? Have you transferred your trust solely to him? Is there anything that you're trusting in other than him? If I asked you, ask you the question, if you were to die today and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What's the right answer? It's certainly not a works answer, right? 
The right answer is something like this. You should let me in. I don't deserve to be here. But because of what Christ has done, because I trust in him, I have his righteousness, and now I've been promised I can come. That is the only right answer. It is not a works answer. It is not a works answer. Because the gospel is, are you ready? Jesus Christ plus, let me hear you again. Nothing. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come today and we thank you for your word. And we pray that this church would always preach the pure gospel, that they would preserve and protect the gospel as well as proclaim it. Lord, that the gospel may do its work because the gospel is powerful, is our treasure, is our greatest treasure in earthen vessels. It is powerful. When the pure gospel is preached, great things happen. And I pray, Lord, that we would preach that pure gospel like Paul did, that we would fight for it, that we would be against anyone who preaches another gospel. Lord, that your gospel would go forward with great power and do the work that you've planned for it to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.